We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It did his somehow the, the shape and tint of his eyewear did yes. more closely resemble sunglasses than like the goggles that you're used to. Um, but yeah, the the original big dog is just to me like one of my favorite players growing up, and yeah, rocked rocked to the shades or goggles or whatever you want to call them in a way totally different from from other NBA players. He looked more like like a first baseman or something <laughs> than he did an NBA player. It's June 96, Jazz at Sonics. This is Remember That Game, a podcast about sporting events that take you on a journey and maybe chart the path of the zeitgeist. I'm your host, Thomas Semerick, and my guest is Seth Rosenthal, whose work at Secret Base is very much an influence for this show. Enjoy the trip to 1996. In some of the early episodes I've entitled, you went into Charles Barkley and the Stockton Malone combos quest unrequited for a title. Was there something that drew you to 90s Western Conference basketball in particular? Hmm. I mean, I think the main thing with 90s Western Conference basketball is that there was only, in retrospect, a brief window to actually win anything. You know, obviously... History proved out that Michael Jordan could not be beaten in the finals. Um, so I think I think the reason that was particularly compelling to me is, first of all, that those teams were really good and had some of the best players to ever touch a basketball. And, you know, M- Michael Jordan didn't just beat nobody to get there. And on the flip side, um, a lot of those series, whether it was against Jordan or against the Rockets in the years that Jordan was out of the league or you know still working his way back. Um, those series were really close and some of those games were really close and, and, you know, Jordan winning six championships and the Bulls being this incredible, unstoppable dynasty was not a sure thing. It was really, it was a close, a close call in several counts and across several years. And so, um, we've gotten part of the way to, to sort of providing all of this context and background and understory to Jordan's success uh in talking about barkley and in talking about stockton and malone but certainly still more episodes that deserve doing uh as we continue making the series untitled and during this broadcast they for the game seven sonics jazz across the bottom of the screen they're in this graphic sonics jazz winner versus the 72 win bulls game one nba finals and next to it is a picture of MJ kind of smirking, which I'm sure the fans <laughs> of the teams playing in the current game appreciated. 
and how the Jazz lost in the first round the season prior. The Sonics had consecutive first-round exits, one against the Nuggets, who were, oh, 14-1 series underdogs. How else do you think the baggage factored into how the series was both played and covered? I think the way it was covered was as an undercard, because not only were the Bulls waiting for them in the East, but the series out East had been Bulls versus Magic. It was MJ versus Shaq. And like, it was just way more uh, marketable than anything that was happening out West, especially because the Sonics and Jazz had kind of been around the block a few times. But yeah, this is one of those games and one of those series where, you know, we know how things turned out, but it felt at the time, I, I don't remember this, I was too young at the time, but my sense of it is that uh, it felt at the time like the Jazz were maybe done if they didn't win this series. And if the Sonics didn't win the series, you know, they were a much younger team and had more time ahead of them. But that would be really a brutal run of three three years in a row. I mean, against the Nuggets, that's one of the most embarrassing blowout losses, not blowout, but uh, upset losses ever. And they lost to what the Lakers the the prior year or the the following year in '95 in a series they really shouldn't have lost. So the Sonics would have made progress either way, making it to the Western Conference Finals and you know taking a team as powerful as Utah to seven games is is a big deal if you've completely flamed out in the first round the prior two seasons. Um, but still, I think a disappointment for a team that good. And the Jazz, you know, we know what happened. But at the time, I think it really seemed like losing to the Sonics might be the death knell for the team. Brutal intro for this one with clips of Dikembe Mutombo and Nick Van Exel that are kind of transparent, that are superimposed over a shot of George Carl looking kind of catatonic. If you're a Sonics fan, it's hard not to feel a little nauseous before the start of this. Yeah, I mean, this... Again, like they've made a ton of progress since 94, since 95. They made it all the way to the Western Conference Finals. But um, I don't think I even recalled until like going back and doing some research and uh, just reading some stuff about the, the 94 Sonics are one of the best teams ever. They were unbelievable. And I think a lot of people I, I know my my now furloughed but wonderful colleague, Mike Prada, who uh, did a series, did a big tournament style series called title list his feeling is that the 94 sonics who lost in the first round were measurably better than the 96 sonics who you know ended up winning this game seven so um those fans were really really freaked out and had had a lot of genuine trauma behind them and you know we're now looking at a team that was maybe not quite as good as one that they'd seen terribly fall apart uh, a couple years prior this oral history in the, the Seattle Times by Jason Jenkins and Bob Condotta. And multiple people from the players of the organization seem to throw Kendall Gill under the bus after they traded him before the 95-96 season. Carl said, quote, we traded a much more athletic and talented player for Hersey Hawkins, who just fit what we needed. We needed a guy who was a low-maintenance, solid player who would do whatever the other guys wanted to do. Kendall was always trying to get more of the pie, and Hersey came in and was just happy to be on a winning team. Where is this on the spectrum for you from insight to excuse? I'm a little biased by knowing that it's George Carl saying that. Because <laughs> George Carl is, has proven throughout decades of coaching to be perfectly willing to throw star players under the bus. He's a dude <laughs> who's, who's been dealt great hands over and over again and, you know, never gone all the way in spite of that. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, Kendall Gill is a guy who really solid player. And, you know, Hersey Hawkins is a great player too, but like Kendall Gill is preferable. You know, Michael Cage, I would say is preferable to Irvin Johnson, who they had in 96. I think that they had Sarunas Marcellonis for a little bit. They kind of had like an embarrassment of riches in 94 and 95. And yet 96 was the team that, that broke through. Camp started pretty rocky for the Sonics that year. George Carl admitting straight up he thought he's getting fired and that he would start every day fresh by getting in a fight with Gary Payton for 30 minutes. Uh, the camp started with a legit physical brawl between recent signee Frank Burkowski and Detlef Schrempf, where they're legit throwing fists and then continued practicing and seemed to become even closer as a result of each person being cool with practicing after a fist fight. <laughs> so very bizarre stuff like that going down. You have the SOS pressure defensive system from uh, Bob Kloppenberg. Gary Payton's putting his chin first into the trap. Uh, in the last dance, they talk about the Bulls having turmoil and toughening up by beating the Pistons. But is there an argument that the Sonics actually took the mantle from Detroit as the league's preeminent wild grit and grinders? Yeah, I mean, certainly they, they took the mantle from Detroit as the league's completely overwhelming defensive team. Um, and they did it a different way. You mentioned that SOS, the Bob Kloppenberg defense. A, f- a fun thing, this is sort of a side note, but when you watch old games of the early 90s Sonics when Kloppenberg was really in control. Which he might not have even been around by 96, but um, he used to hold up little signs, like little placards to call out different coverages the way you would see a football coach do now. And yeah, I mean, their, ma- their main thing, though, was just go all out, switch everything, everybody guards everybody. And they... They didn't have necessarily like an obvious veteran leader. I guess maybe Nate McMillan would have been that guy. But everybody on that team was really athletic. Everyone cared about defense. And Gary Payton, the point guard, was sort of the beginning of that, like you mentioned. Um, and yeah, you know, a lot of this stuff I, I don't particularly remember. But that, that was a team that had a lot of weirdos in the locker room. Um, and, you know, George Carl is not someone who was particularly good at tamping down any sort of drama taking place in his locker room. He tended to run his mouth himself. Um, I do particularly love the idea of a, a Burkowski shrimp like buzz cut. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there's some quotes from Eric Snow in that. I'd recommend anyone to read that Seattle times oral O history where he's just horrified, but also attributing that to the, the, the team chemistry that got him past the first round 96. I don't know how well that you know holds up to scrutiny, but the players there seem to think just the complete insanity of that season somehow helped them give it over the hump. And you mentioned, yeah, such a good defensive team. Uh, the number two defensive rating behind the bowl season. Peyton Thompson steals per game. Hersey Hawkins near the top in steal percentage. Sean Kemp fourth in rebound rate. There's probably something to being at Key Arena, venue with like 19,000 people you fit where you also have pressure, defense, that kind of attitude, that swarming. The closest thing I could relate to is seeing like a VCU basketball game in Richmond. That, that crowd was wild. And I think uh, the Sonics in the series that we're talking about, having home court advantage was a big part of it. Because was, it was like having a sixth man. They were, they, I, I think the NBA comparison now would be like the way the, way the Bucks crowd now has all these like coordinated chants and stuff. The, yeah. the Key Arena crowd was like that at its best. 
Sonics fans would chant or they would count in unison as Carl Malone took a sweet time trying not to miss a, a free throw. That, that kind of advantage, I mean, 38 and 3 at home that's during the regular season, lost by combined five points in those three games. Can you think of a, a tougher place to win a basketball game in NBA history outside of? Chicago than Key Arena. Nah, man, that's that's right. I mean, the Jazz had something going to Delta Center themselves, but Key Arena, there were a couple of arenas at the time. I, Orlando had a crazy uh, home winning streak for a while in the early 90s. But in terms of being really loud, you know, where like the team was very good, the crowd was even better. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It just makes me sad that there's no pro basketball in Seattle right now because that, that city clearly deserves a team. Slight spoiler, this would be the Sonics' last like really significant playoff win before they went to OKC in 2008. But not to not, to not get too ahead of myself, or maybe get way ahead of myself, <laughs> do you think in that MJ hiatus, if the Sonics get out of the first round, the Sonics those years were the rocket killers? That deep pressure defense, and they couldn't deal with Kemp down low on offense. They knocked out Hakeem a few times. Get out of their own way in the first round, those two MJ hiatus years, are they the odds-on favorite to win those two? I I think definitely. I think in 94, both the Jazz and the Rockets were, and, you know, the, the Suns obviously didn't go very far, but the, the Jazz of the Rockets and the Suns were all shaky. The, the Sonics were clearly the best team and just had something really cosmically weird happen to them in that first-round series against the Nuggets. And in 95, basically the same deal. I mean, the, the Jazz were a very good team, but the Rockets took care of them. And, and that was a weird Rockets team itself. That was a team where, like, the, you know, they had had the Clyde Drexler trade midseason. Um, they had Vernon Maxwell was missing during the playoffs. He just kind of went AWOL and, and took a leave of absence. These were, you know, the, the Rockets ended up making it all the way twice, and, and the Jazz ended up advancing further than the Sonics did. But it was it was close in, in all all of those iterations and you know had the sonics just taken care of business in the first round i really you know i think there's at least one finals between 94 and 95 they just really messed up and maybe that was youth um but but that's a that's a big what if in nba history because those were excellent teams 95 jazz team they had their own mantra much like the 98 bulls did you know they had the last dance even more famous now in your entitled series detailed that the jazz 95 mantra was it's our time yeah uh, they go out in the first round and then they come into this series the sonics pretty close to the 72 win bulls they had won to count the playoffs 65 over their last 79 games they just swept the rockets trying to go for their three-peat and smash that up quickly. Game one, Peyton Hawkins gives Stockton Fitz. Kemp pushes around Malone in the post. Sonics win 102-72. With how much you studied the Jazz for the Untitled Series, does coming back from this stick out more or fall more in line with how resilient these Stockton Malone squads could be over their 18 playoff appearances? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a very weird stretch for the Jazz, basically from 91-ish to, to 98, where, well, especially in the early half of that decade, they would alternate conference finals with first-round losses. Like, they would look like this was finally the year and fall apart, 
And then once you thought that might be the end of the run, they would make the conference finals the following year. And yeah, this this series is like a little microcosm of that. Um, as I recall, in the early parts of this 96 series, like John Stockton, I think, was way more hurt than he was letting on. Yeah. Um, but even without that, Gary Payton kind of overwhelmed him. He was just a bigger, more you know vigorous, younger player. And Stockton, who, again, like, I think Carl Malone was the one who had some quotes where he was like, you know, when this is over, you're going to find out what's really going on with John because he's in bad shape. And Stockton was just the kind of guy who didn't want to make excuses. But, you know, Peyton and Kemp were sort of seen as the the young version of Stockton and Malone, the, the next evolution. And especially early in this series, they really looked like they had already seized that mantle and like, you know, Malone could not handle Kemp. I don't know how much they actually matched up one-on-one, but Kemp was pretty much unstoppable and was going for 20-something and 10-something every single night. And and Peyton really held Stockton to some terrible games, especially in, like, games one through, you know, five or six of that series. Apparently, they try to just go with just Malone guarding Kemp. And then on defense, Kemp would have more help from Urban Johnson. That wasn't working. And later in the series, they try to throw fives at Kemp. But Stockton, with a steal in overtime in Game 5 to extend the series, bring him to 3-2, battling injuries, and then having his best two games, 6-7. and seven. Would you take that over the shot over Barkley the following year as the most impressive and gutsy display of Stockton's career? The, the shot over Barkley is very important for Stockton because he had had some pretty... Right. Uh, pretty depressing clutch moments before that. He'd missed a, really a handful of big shots. He and Malone both had missed a handful of big shots in their careers together. Really important playoff misses. But yeah, in terms of, of gutsy play, I mean, I, I kind of think we still don't know, unless I've just failed to find it, the extent of Stockton's injuries in 96. But he was struggling. And, you know, in the in the game five that ended with that big steal, he did not play well. Game six was a blowout where he finally did play well. And in this game seven, he, I think he had his very best game of the series, which after, you know, a week and a half, two weeks of dragging your battered body up and down the floor against Gary Payton, of all people, is Ugh. pretty incredible. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, in that Game 7, Stockton plays all down the stretch, catches Peyton and Hawkins being a little aggressive on closeouts, driving to the lane, opening things up for the offense. It's a close game down the stretch. You have Kemp muscling Antoine Carr basically off the court. Quick side question. 
Antoine Carr's sunglasses look. Have you seen anything like that on the court since? You know, plenty of guys have worn the glasses. We've had Amari Stoudemire had his stint, and I Bo Outlaw when I was growing up was sort of the the guy. The the Grant brothers both had their goggles, but Antoine Carr as a as a girthier individual with a sort of different kind of game, you know, the big wrinkly neck, like he just pulled him off better than other guys. <laughs> and I it did his somehow the, the shape and tint of his eyewear did yes. more closely resemble sunglasses than like the goggles that you're used to. Um, but yeah, the the original big dog is just to me like one of my favorite players growing up and yeah, rocked rocked to the shades or goggles or whatever you want to call them in a way totally different from from other NBA players. He looked more like like a first baseman or something. Yeah. That he did an NBA player. He looked just aesthetically he pulled it off differently to the point where I had no response but feel impressed. Um, <laughs> Sean Kemp, Carr can't deal with him. He fouls out. They bring in George Foster again. Kemp pushes him around, puts Seattle up three going into the final seconds of the game. This was after Carl Malone was struggling shooting that day, but did hit Brian Russell for a layup to cut it to one. So Malone struggled shooting that day. I think it was eight for 22, but still made plays moving the ball down the stretch. But as it always comes back to pick and roll, Malone gets fouled, misses the chance to hit the three-point play, and then Carl Malone goes to the line, down three, to shoot free throws. As you've uh, researched, that's been a sore point for the Jazz. Yeah, we've touched on Malone's free throws a little bit, but you know the, the aesthetic experience of watching Malone shoot free throws is, A, he takes like 25 seconds to get a shot off. He's muttering to himself the whole time, and he fades away on his free throw. So it's like <laughs> already, already a precarious situation. Um, but yeah, not only in this series, in this game, but in prior series, he had missed a lot of free, not, not a terrible free throw sh- shoot, shooter for his career. You know, in regular seasons, you look, you look down his stats line and he's in the seventies, he's up near 80, but uh, this season and in the playoffs, he was particularly terrible, like down in the fifties and sixties and throughout his career in critical playoff moments, he missed really important free throws and so I think if you're a jazz fan and teams down uh, three and Stockton and Malone run that pick and roll perfectly, Malone gets a, you know, a look with a foul. You really, really more than anyone usually would want that shot to drop. And when it falls off the rim, it's like, all right, well, now we're depending on Carl Malone to hit two free throws. And that is historically not something you want to be counting on. He's just, especially in, you know, uh, with the road crowd chanting while he's trying to shoot, like n- not a situation you want to be in. The announcers making uh, as panic stricken for jazz fans as possible. Malone coming to the line six for 10 <laughs> second. He, it felt like even before he missed it, they go make that six for 11. And then Bill Walton emphatically declares too much bounce in the legs. And it, it's just um, George Carl calls a 20 second timeout. Uh, Malone misses the second one, I'm, I'm guessing on purpose, but Peyton comfortably taps it to Hawkins, who is a 90% free throw shooter in the playoffs. I'm guessing that's how Carl drew it up. I don't know. They had a huddle at half court right before that. 
and they interviewed Carl Malone the second the game ended. I, I can't remember the last time I've seen that happen in an NBA game where Paul George isn't doing an interview right after Dame Lillard drains from the logo. Yeah, as I recall, like Malone is the first person they talk to. Yeah. Because, yeah, nowadays you'll get like maybe half an hour later in the locker room or, you know, in the tunnel after the guys had a chance to breathe a little bit away from especially if you know you're in the other team's arena like away from the crowd in a quiet place they've had a chance to breathe and now they'll talk but yeah if i remember correctly at the end of that game the crowd is going nuts the music's blaring the confetti's falling down and madrash had immediately grabs malone you know like malone hasn't even shaken hands with everyone <sighs> and and you know, he gives to to Carl Malone's credit, which I'm not usually want to give, uh, gives a, a perfectly gentlemanly inter- interview to Madre Shot. Yeah. But yeah, those are not ideal conditions to be have your face on TV. So a quick excerpt for the very start of that convo, a Madre Shot quote, Carl, a very tough loss here today. <laughs> I'm like, oh, gosh. And then uh, Carl Malone comes right out with it. Obviously, I didn't play very well. Admits that he missed shots he needed to make all that and he's still going to get clowned uh in the nba finals the following years uh by uh, scotty pippen yeah although there's there's really something to be said for those like the jazz not putting it all together and making it all the way until after that it just you know in in the years in the years up through 1996 i think it seemed repeatedly like the jazz had finally reached the end um, you know, the team that we saw in 96 was not built for 96. It was built for like 94, yeah. uh, you know, getting Howard Isley and Chris Morris and Ostertag and those guys. They were trying to win now while Jordan was out of the league. And by the time Jordan had come back, I'm not sure anyone expected the Jazz to still be kicking the way they were. And the fact that they lost to the Sonics in brutal fashion yeah. and then turned around and made back to back finals is is not something I think anyone reasonably expected at the time. Yeah, it seemed like for the Sonics, it was just the beginning, and for the Jazz, it was the end. Quite the opposite, as it turns out. This from the oral history in the Seattle Times, Frank Prakowski says the GM, quote, went and signed uh, Jim McElvain, and it just blew the team up because he gave him so much money, and it pissed everybody off. All he had to do was keep the team together and give us another run. That upset Sean Kemp, and it just snowballed from there. How much do you think that weird CBA situation with Sean Kemp not being able to renegotiate had had a ripple effect with that Sonics team? It seems like it must have. I mean, you know, we've already talked about how the the team had a pretty weird bunch of personalities and, you know, not not exactly helped out by Carl being the coach. And so maybe they were kind of on razor's edge there. Uh, But yeah, Kemp, Kemp was a temperamental guy. He was Unlike Malone and Stockton, he and Peyton were really in their primes uh, in 96. And yeah, like you said, that should have been a team that kept building after 96. Um, but, you know, as I recall, they kind of flamed out in 97. And uh, after that was what, the, the Kempfer, Kempfer-Vin Baker trade, which yeah. is one of, the, one of the stranger and more fascinating trades in NBA history. But yeah, that's a team that not only made mistakes and dismantled itself, but did so sort of inelegantly in a way that, you know, didn't recreate hope. They they just kind of pulled apart uh, and 
you know, if Peyton, if Peyton and Kemp were the engine of that team, they didn't really get equal value coming back for them. I mean, I guess Ray Allen was, was a pretty good addition, uh, but they didn't make something out of dismantling that team in a way that, you know, a better, a better run organization would have. Yeah. That, that Ray Allen Richard Lewis combo fast forward yeah. 15 years, you got a shot, but in the yeah, early two thousands, not as much value as it would have been a little later. They let yeah, Vincent ask you walk because didn't get along with Carl Signing McIlvain and paying a five that much and letting Irvin Johnson walk when Kemp wanted to really earn on that great Western Conference Finals and even the NBA Finals. He nearly got more votes than MJ for MVP, which I had no idea until I was reading I up. I didn't know that. Wow. He nearly became the first losing MVP since Jerry West in 69. A close second to MJ was top six that year in both true shooting percentage and rebound rate. He wanted to earn on that. They paid McIlvain, who ended up being a dud, a ton of money, and Kemp never really recovered. There are weird vibes in the Sonics. Kemp holds out in 97, is traded before 98. In a world where the Sonics organization finds a way to manage this situation, does Seattle give the Bulls a better shot than Utah the next two years? And are they the favorite for the lockout season? That's interesting. I I don't really see why not. I mean, I think, I think without Kloppenberg you could reasonably expect that that defense wasn't going to hold up as much as it had. Um, Like I said, you know, the supporting cast, even by 96, wasn't what it had been. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, the, the jazz, the the West wasn't just wasn't the same in 98 and 99 or in 97 through 99, I guess. Um, The jazz were old. The rockets were even older and the Spurs were obviously up and coming, but not quite there yet. And, you know, Dave Robinson was old. I, the Sonics were really the one team that that, uh, that had, sup- that you know, if they had kept everything intact, had superstars in their prime and would have had, you know, both experience and, like, able bodies. Um, okay. so, so, yeah, I mean, it's not something I've thought hard about before, but... I, I really think that they must have been kicking themselves as, as you know, 99 turned to 2000 and so forth, looking back at those years that when the Bulls were probably at their most vulnerable at the, you know, at the end of the line, when they were all fighting each other and old and grumpy and injured, that of all the teams that got to face them, it was the Jazz who had been, you know, who themselves were old and grumpy uh, instead of a team that was really at the top of its game, like the Sonics could have been had they made better decisions. In the 90s, you also had this element, and this question at the end of this might sound crazy, but I thought about it. Uh, in the 90s, you have these great teams that couldn't get over the hump, and then they changed their classic uniform that looks good to something goofy and cartoonish before immediately taking the next step. The Sonics switched for, to this greenish-reddish combo, get to the finals, Jazz go to their mountain kits the following year, break through the West. Elway loses four Super Bowls, but when the Broncos switch from those great orange and blues, boom, they win two straight titles. Is it at all possible there is a psychological effect in shedding old baggage with new jerseys? I had not thought about that. That is very interesting. Yeah, the Jazz wore the, you know, the music note jerseys for so long, and then they switched to the mountains. And one of the strange... I've always wondered what it must be like to look at those jerseys 
yeah. as as like a non-American, like a it's just this jersey that has these big beautiful purple Rocky Mountains on it, and it says Jazz, or it <laughs> says Utah, which has nothing to do with Jazz. What a bizarre combination of elements, but. <laughs> Yeah, it really, I, I had not put together that both the Sonics and the Jazz had jersey changes before they went to the finals. The The Suns really weren't too, there wasn't too much of a time gap between them changing their jerseys and making the finals either before that. Um, those those Sonics jerseys, by the way, in particular, are like the jersey of my youth. The first uh. the first NBA jersey I ever bought was a, was a green jersey green sonics kemp jersey from what must have been the 97 season those those i still love i was definitely into all types of the mid 90s it seemed like there's a move to making the area around the the letters more busy most of it i love then and some of it i still love but this from the sonics media relations mark moqueen from that oral history he says the traditionalists did not like it I'm not really sure why we switched. It had too many colors. It was too fancy. The red in it reminded people of Portland's colors. I had one fan come up to me and say, red is Portland's color. I never want to see red in our uniform. Why are you guys doing that? They sometimes wore, they like, they had alternates that were red too as the background color. Like they didn't just have the element of red. They were red. You know, the real, the real, I think, winner of that era, at least on the Western Conference, and I think an exception to the rule you just put out, is the Rockets wore their, you know, their white, red, and yellow, very simple uniforms, which are classics, when they won two championships. Right. And then after that, they switched to some of the most garish uniforms ever with the pinstripes and the giant basketball planet with, yeah. like, a weird anthropomorphized rocket swirling <laughs> around it and the number in the corner. And then they, they stopped making the finals as soon as they made that switch. <laughs> Maybe an ain't broke, don't fix it. So if you are winning the finals, don't put like a satellite <laughs> type thing going around the, the text. Too busy. But if, if you're trying to get over the hump, you know, maybe that jump starts it. This has been another episode of Remember That Game. Please rate, review, subscribe, and check out more episodes. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.